This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Goodness, and there I was thinking that's the sound of the ocean. But alas, not. It's the sound of a gremlin so early in 2024. Apologies for that little bit of muffle. Uh, but I'm sure our next guest doesn't muffle his words, doesn't mince them either. He's very clear, wants to be president of South Africa. Well, so says uh, social media. He's very passionate about issues of education and he is unequivocal when condemning corruption. So what is he offering the electorate in this election cycle of 2024? We're going behind the party line with Build One South Africa and the leader and founder, Musi Maimani. Muruti, good morning. Good morning and good morning to fellow South Africans. I I think it would be wrong to spill the compliments of the year and the 15th, but I guess it would be (laughs) fair enough to say I wish South Africans a genuinely prosperous, peaceful and a safe year this year. I think one of our listeners says we are still going to be complimenting each other until the end of January. He made that directive and I'm going with it. (laughs) Right. I'll stick with it then myself. Okay. So before we go into anything, Build One South Africa, spelled B-O-S-A. Do we say Busa, Boza? What are we saying here? Bosa. Bosa. Yeah, I boss I give my uh, <laughs> Somehow I knew you'd say that. Yes. <laughs> it is it is what it is. And uh and I and I think it plays on two things. The first is I really think South Africans must own our country. You know, I I I I, I believe that. I think democracy works when people believe it to be theirs and they are they are dictators of their own future rather than being led by dictators mm. who think who just oppress people. And oh. secondly, we really talk about one South Africa bit, which is, you know, when I look at the ballot, sometimes I think to myself, we are being asked to go to the polls to express our races, our religions, our regions, rather than our ideas. You know, sometimes you can say these are black parties, these are religious parties, these are regional parties. What we need is ideas for the future. So so to me, that's why when we talk about One South Africa and building it, we want the people to own it and come together to build it. All right. So however you say it, Bosa, it's fine. Be the boss of your own destiny. Uh, Busa, it's fine. Govern into the future. And the actual word, build One South Africa, be part of the solution. That's what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Ideas for the future. What are your ideas for the future? Look, I mean, I think, you know, for me, so what South Africa has had in the last 30 years is an erosion of its ability to govern. So I, I really want us to build a government of the future. And building that government of the future starts with us in some way digitizing it. So that's about ensuring that access to digital infrastructure as possible and our government is a government of it's a modern futuristic government. I, I, mm-hmm. I can't understand why we still read that the home affairs is down for two days. I mean that's strange for me. You don't hear that of our banks, but you hear of government departments. And in that way we're able to transition South Africa into an economy that delivers a job in literally every household. Mm-hmm. And and we think that's really possible. It's about two million jobs in the country, 
And these are digital focused future and business processing in townships, in communities. That's what we focused on. We also think that more importantly, we need to reevaluate how we do our education. So it's not just a promise. It's about making sure that as we look at the children who are going to be getting their certificates on Thursday, how many of them will end up unemployed and how many of them will end up employed by just stats. Two thirds of them are going to spend the rest of the next five years at home. So we can't afford that. We need to up what the pass rate is, make sure there's blended learning and that young people have a choice as to which school they can go to. And lastly, by using technology, we can make sure our communities are safer. So for me, this is Musi Maimane who's saying, look, I've known what goes on in politics, because having been in parliament, etc., but I've been engaged in business mm-hmm. and I've seen solutions for the future that we need to blend in together so that when we run this country, it is a country that can compete with anyone in the world. Okay, so quite a few things there that you've said, uh, and I'm going to break it down into those four categories as you've explained them, which is e-governance uh, and jobs within the sector of technology, also using technology to create a safer society, so it's tackling crime, uh, education and employability, and then overhauling uh, the economy to make it more future Uh, future relevant, future ready and competitive. So let's start with point number one, e-governance. Some people would say, no, it's already happening. Um, E-governance is the bedrock of how the government uh, is trying to run its affairs, including the Department of Home Affairs. There's digitalization. When the systems are down, it's because CETA is down. So that comparison of the banks are never down, but the government departments are down. So the infrastructure, the technology is there. Why is it not that government? It doesn't mean that somebody's not thinking about it. It's just the institution that's meant to direct all the IT protocols in government is perhaps not working well. So it's not really an issue of introducing e-governance, but just fixing Um the technical sides of it, some people would say. The solution is already there. No, I, I mean, I think I pick on that because it's an aspect of what government does. But the reality of it is that we've got a, a number of dynamics that underpin how a government is meant to work. So we have a lack in ethical leadership. So, for example, you cannot you cannot lead anything, regardless of how you look at it, without leaders who are able to... Uh, not steal people's money, ensure that, in fact, they turn out day in, day out, not with the belief that government work is sideline work, but their main hustle is elsewhere, actually committing to servant leadership that puts people first. So that's that that underpins it. But secondly, it's capability. And I think the capability question is often the one we override. We almost assume people are bad when they are corrupt, but we don't assume them to be bad when they're incompetent. And the state is not capable. And by that, I'm reflecting on issues such as the fact that when you talk about the e-government issues, how many reports have we seen where there's inflation, inflated of pricing or poor planning as it pertains to even something as basic as websites and interactions? Today, if anyone breaks into your home, just to talk about the intersect of all government departments, there isn't a, a database that's able to ensure that actually from your fingerprints being aligned to home affairs or the criminal and the criminal justice system and ensuring that we are better able to interact with citizens, that whole mechanism is not in place. So what I would urge for is when I talk about e-governance, it's, not, it's ethical, it's digital, but it's also capable enough 
to be able to ensure that it delivers on policy plans that it puts forward. The issue is not planning in South Africa. We have enough plans. We talk about them all the time. But we can't implement because the capability of the state doesn't exist. And so if we can't even do basics like pay social grants or pay the right people social grants, as you read in the report this weekend, 70,000 additional people have been paid who don't Mm -hmm. exist. You know, so all of these issues are indicators of a government that, in fact, is no longer capable. So when I reflect on the whole theme of governance, Mm -hmm. it's about rebuilding the capability of the state. It's, for me, it's very clear. So, so capacity, competence also matter as much as we focus on corruption because where there's incompetence, the wrong contracts are issued, the wrong contracts are issued, the services don't get provided, taxpayers' money is utilized for the services that aren't being provided, systems collapse, people can't register uh, their children onto the database, people don't get their IDs, there are crimes committed in your house, there isn't a database of people's fingerprints so we don't know where to find the criminal and it all started off with the fact that somebody was either corrupt or competent or both and that then starts to collapse the broad ecosystem. Have I understood that issue of e-governance Absolutely. well? Okay. Absolutely. You then also talk about the need to create a safe environment and that's embedded in the constitution and we've seen the crime statistics they are worrying quarter on quarter quarter on quarter especially violent contract crimes are going up and you're saying technology could help here explain yeah i mean on the first instances i've always held the view that we need to decentralize policing we've got a national SAPS that sit and 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 we did that constitutionally because we felt that at the time of 1994 you didn't want each province having its own regional police and an army but now we're past that now we need to get to a point where policing is lower down to the ground we need to introduce well a, a national volunteer program of young people who can be able to supplement because more eyes on crime helps that and the use of technology there are already tools that we started to pilot that look at things like shot stopper so that we know when we deploy resources, where are moments where you can hear violence and murder taking place. We've got to be stronger and harsher on murder. In a Muslim Maimani government, and I say this without fear of contradiction, you must, if you commit murder in this country, we need to take serious action against you. We need to prioritize that by capacitating the police and giving them appropriate digital tracking devices so that we can ensure that where there are shots being taken, where there's an increase of of activity, whether it's gang-driven, etc., with a localized policing, we can be far more effective at being able to arrest criminals. One of the things we must understand about crime is that crime is not committed by new people every day. Crime is committed by the same people more often because we can't track them. And so the conviction rates around murder, for example, sit at below 20%, which means your probability of getting away with murder is four out of every five. So that entire ecosystem needs to be corrected. And when I talk about the use of technology, it's about not only fingerprinting, but technology that allows to track vehicles, technology that allows us to be able to listen out for shots that have been taken in gun violence and making sure that we are able to use camera technology across major metros so that we can identify crime and criminals when they take place, okay. when, when, when it all takes place. So this is about visibility and being able to either be preemptive before a horrible crime is committed or lead you directly to the source at that point of a crime being committed. But 
Some of the problems, and you've alluded to it, is what's happening in the criminal justice system, the court level. And unless you overhaul the constitution, which people have said, um, you are not going to get stronger conviction rates because it's about the mechanisms deployed in court, in law. So you can set up your cameras and apprehend the criminal, but to get full justice, the courts need to work better. What would you do about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think one of the things that I've, I've, I've advocated for in this country is a national civilian year so that young people can be able to spend a year post schools volunteering in the systems. And one of them is obviously if a young person wants to do a degree in law, or whatever the case might be, they need to be working in our court system uh, in that year. So in increasing capability and manpower allows us to be far more effective at being able to manage how quickly the courts can work, but also it reduces um, the burden of the police, the police themselves from being able to go. When they're collecting evidence, policemen at this point in time have got multiple competing priorities so that they don't know how to produce evidence that's quicker and nimble when it arrives in courts because you can have a detective dealing not only with, with a, a few murders but many, uh, but you can also in the forensic pathology departments, you end up with a backlog of testing and blood alcohol levels and systems like that. So the whole ecosystem, of course, needs to be improved. But here's where I think, and I'm not saying technology is the only panacea, but it will help us speed that up with an increased manpower so that when the courts are considering evidence, it is fairly straightforward. At this point in time, there are too many people getting away with murder for technicalities, and then the the role for the courts becomes Mm -hmm. too long so that the people become recriminalized or end up back in the Mm -hmm. streets. And so what I've heard you say is this is a more creative use of a system like national service. Young people have a gap year. They think they want to study law. They get absorbed as a sort of an intern uh, into the court system. They help with the clerical and filing work. That alleviates some of the administrative uh, backlogs in court. And perhaps we process cases quicker and faster and we get convictions uh, faster. And we're also training and skilling young people for jobs they might have in future. So Sorting out two problems. Okay. Overhauling the South African economy, making it competitive. Why do you think South Africa has uh, lost its luster on the world stage, economically at least? Yeah, I mean, on two fundamental issues. One, South Africa cannot provide bulk infrastructure, I mean, naturally on energy and water. No economy is going to run in the absence of those two things. I mean, we mustn't kid ourselves here. ESCOM is a problem. And ultimately, when municipalities cannot deliver water, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an even deeper problem for businesses. So what I'm suggesting that we do is we introduce uh, a, a mixture of energy mixes and allowing for people to be able to wheel energy from one place to another. So we stabilize the grid. We don't need load shedding. I think that uh, we would be able to get out of the load shedding cycle within two years. That's about introducing SMRs. So those allow technology, nuclear technology, to be safer nuclear technology in communities so that we can power up those. We diversify energy and make it more environmentally friendly by reducing demand and giving people cheaper and more sustainable energy. And then the second and more fundamental issue linked to that is about dealing with logistics because as things stand at the moment, uh, we, we were having a whole thing in December about our ports and where it is, mm. and we've almost forgotten about that. But the reality of it is that in import and exporting of goods, you can't run 
an effective logistics business within a country or the logistics don't work because Transnet is collapsing. We need to fix those two entities if we're going to have a, an economy that is far more functional. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I would say is that the reason when I always talk about building one South Africa, our economy is concentrated in, his, in, 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 in places and not democratized in other places. So when I go to a township, for example, I often I will ask the question, what if we could create tax incentives for people to invest in townships, allow them to build infrastructure? I'd certainly, I'm involved at this point in time in making sure that data packages that go into townships are cheaper and people have got internet. Because once you've got those two things happening, safer infrastructure, electricity on, and data uh, connectivity being available in townships, the hub of that economy can develop. We should be placing call centers in townships. We should be ensuring that people are already on e-payment platforms mm-hmm. in townships because already there are businesses and there are entrepreneurs in townships. But the, but, make but, but the Gauteng government is already doing that. It's one of the bedrocks of the uh, Economic Development Department of Gauteng, certainly. When you arrive, the Gauteng Department cannot be able to offer tax incentives for infrastructure building townships. It cannot because it's not within its competence. So what I'm saying to you is that imagine if I said to anyone who wants to place a factory within a community in a township, I'll give you zero tax for the next number of years. I gain two things. I gain infrastructure and people working closer to home, particularly uh, families, so that we can ensure. The benefit benefit in doing that more effectively is that people are not spending 40% of their income Mm. traveling to places to find work. But what I'm saying is they've already set up business solution centers or who have already got a program around that in the townships? They haven't been able to go further and give tax incentives. Uh-huh. I mean, if you think about inner city, which is about what what goes on in the inner city of Johannesburg, imagine if we revitalize that economy by saying all of those buildings must be available at literally limited leasing, mm-hmm. but giving tax incentives to investors okay. to be able to come on board. It changes the landscape okay. of our economy and gives border ownership to people. Okay, so you can have a policy, you can have an intention, but if people aren't taking it up, you have to ask yourself, why is that? And incentives don't exist, even if that policy exists. Education, a huge issue for you. Um, and tell me why that is. It is because when I when you track countries that have taken themselves up from where we were in 94 to far more prosperous nations, and and the best examples of those are countries in, in um, you know, the Asian tigers is what they are called, mm-hmm. so countries like South Korea, Japan, etc. They've done it through the, the two things. One, building bulk infrastructure, but educating their citizens and making sure their citizens can compete. It's, our problem is not our kids. Our kids are incredible. They are talented. Our problem is that we put them in a system that eventually ensures that by the time they finish school, they are generally unemployable. Which, mm-hmm. which is a crisis. So I'm passionate about this because we cannot achieve what Fervoud dreamt of, which was that townships will become dormitories of unemployment. We've got to work hard at our education system. And what I'm suggesting is a couple of things. The first is we give parents the right to choose where their kids can go by voucherizing education, introduce a combination of charter schooling, which means we can have a public-private partnership in schools. Like, Let me talk about my community in Dobsonville. If we take a school, we put it there, we ensure that there's a public-private partnership. We can ensure that that school is competitive. Parents have got the financial resource to come in uh, and bring their kids there, and we can upscale what kind of teaching takes place within that space. And more seriously, I think that Projects like Redress and Triple B Double E can be better 
capacitated when we focus them on education because then we can ensure that particularly black kids, their education is improved to levels that we can compete with anyone in the world. And so for me, I think the reform of education cannot be a more crucial issue. We, I'm so sick of reading a story about a pet latrine in a school or a school that's without, where kids have to imagine what, what a computer is. In 2024, really, we can't be doing that. And I think one of the greatest failures of this government that must be called out for it is the fact that they failed their education system. Okay. Percy, you'd like to comment briefly? Thanks. Um, I'm really uh, uh, excited by some of the ideas that Musi is putting forward. So kudos on him. Uh, God bless his soul. But I, I also want to say, whenever I hear conversations about, about policing, I get really worried. Because often we throw men in badges with batons and guns at kids who would have been solved, you know, who would have been saved by simple, simple opportunities, right? So unless you get the schooling system correct, and I'm glad you, you know, while I was holding you, addressed a little bit of this. Unless you address the issue that uh, uh, kids need better environment at schools and better extracurricular after schools so that they do not become available to criminal cartels who offer them better opportunities mm-hmm. than the hunger uh, that, that often you know, is their lot. Okay. You are not going to solve the issue of crime. What okay. I'm trying to say is you don't throw badges and, and, and surveillance, the surveillance state at a problem that can be solved okay. by simply realigning our education system. Right. And when that needs to be the emphasis, not the policing as such, especially in the townships. Right. Some of us grew up in poor schools. Uh, okay, you know, per- per- Percy, unfortunately, yeah. because of time, right. but right. I think your right. point right. was made. And Percy is saying, Musi, there's a social context. Poverty is at the heart of why children are drawn to a life of crime and criminality. And up until we deal with the root causes of what keeps uh, South Africans and the majority of black South Africans impoverished, a lot of these other issues are not going to be dealt with. So what's your pro-poor strategy? Yeah, look, I mean, other than making sure that the best pathway out of, what, what do we do for a child who's born in a poor family? The first thing is we've got to ensure that there's a strength in how we keep that family unit working because we know that uh, at this point in time, more than half the kids born in this country are born to, to single mothers. So that already puts them in a space where we know scientifically that when you do research, you find that kids who don't have parental support don't stay through the whole education system. The second is I think we need to introduce maternal grants, and that's a different type of grant that I'm talking about because a child who is born to a mother who's not feeding them, that child's brain development is impaired. There's very little you can do in the education system. So I'd like kids who are born healthy, and the maternal grant would be helpful. And so that in the beginning, we use tax to be able to ensure that basic food items do not suffer, do not become more expensive. It, it's a crime in this country, country that, that the most stolen item, if you go to any pick and pay or any retail you go to, you'll find that the one item that's got heavy security around it is, inf- is, is baby formula. I mean, I mean, we should be ashamed of ourselves as a society. We should make that easily accessible. So that's in the pipeline of the things that we do. Strengthen ECD centers, making sure our primary school teachers are about the best that we can find and incentivize them to stay teaching because that creates a pipeline for a child to be able to go, I can move from poverty in somewhere or another to a successful nation. But we've got to look at it as in the beginning phases and countries that have gone through similar exercises where it's in Brazil or anywhere else have got strong office of the child that sits within the presidency and ensures that what I would bring here is that the rights of children 
can be better protected right. because that ensures that they can escape the cycle of poverty. Okay, At so this point in time, we're busy recycling it progressively and ending it from one generation okay. to the next. So dedicated program to nutrition for uh, infants and children under the age of 10, education for them, create safety nets for their mothers so that children don't fall through the cracks. We've run out of time, but here's my thing. Um, the IEC says there's already 356 parties on the ballot paper. At this rate, Kanditi, we're going to need a briefcase to carry the ballot box into into uh, the ballot paper into the booth. And one of the things that people have said is countries that have some uh, uh, parties that have some alignment ideologically, why don't they all just come into uh, an alliance, whether it's a multi-party charter or a SARA or whatever the case may be, why don't they band together instead of diluting that uh, vote and going in as individuals. And when I listen to you talk, although some of your policies are uniquely yours, but between you, the DA, the ACDP, the UDM, the ATM, Action SA, Arise Mzansi, you all sort of have the same worldview. Why can't you go in there as one united force? I think that conversation has been had and it's not one I'm close to. But before we fix for who works with who, let's also fix how we vote. This is not the registration of multiple parties, not a fault of people being registering parties. It's the fact that when the electoral system was being overhauled, Parliament did such a shocking job that they invented this problem. The problem can be easily solved by saying that if people are voting in their constituencies, then you make sure that if a party is strong in KZN in this constituency, it only focuses there rather than having to compete nationally. And we have direct elections of people. We fix the electoral system. We can deliver a quality of candidacy going forward. But notwithstanding that. I still think that conversations around alignment can take place. And it's very difficult sometimes to do them before an election. Sometimes it's easier to do them post an election. But be assured, we mustn't listen to those who keep telling people that actually coalitions don't work whilst they themselves are a coalition, as the president says. We must recognize the fact that in truth, coalitions are the future and they're going to come on board. And the conversations of pre-coalitions is, of course, being had. I know I'm part of some of those and I'm bringing South Africans together. But post that, there will be a coalition government in this country and we should not fear it. Actually, we should welcome it because one party dominance delivers state capture. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Musi Maimani, leader of BUSA. Uh, and I love Nduma says, Lerato, BUSA can be BOSA, it can be BUSA, rule. It can also be BUSA, meaning bring things back to normal. And he says that's what Musi is advocating. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.